everybody. Welcome to Hacking Into Security, your career-related cybersecurity show. I'm your host, Ricky Burke, the InfoSec recruiter, and regularly we'll be speaking with a variety of guests from industry leaders, entrepreneurs, senior specialists, and new people into the space. Each is sharing their story, views on the industry, and how others can navigate success in their careers. Okay, so we're here with another episode of Hacking Into Security. Today, we are very fortunate to be joined by Casey Ellis. Casey is the founder, CTO, chairman of Bugcrowd. Casey, I guess, as an intro for yourself, who are you? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you, you kind of summed it up. It's a, it's, a, it's a mouthful. I couldn't decide on a title, so I've got three at this point. But basically, my background, grew up hacking stuff, tearing apart technology, putting it together, did about six weeks of a science degree and, and actually dropped out and got into network engineering, at which point I realized that hacking stuff and actually, you know, it being a viable career path was was a thing. Did pen testing for about six years, moved across into sales and solutions architecture. And at some point along that journey, it kind of got into my head that I wanted to do startups. And so yeah, worked on a whole bunch of different things leading up to, to actually founding Bug Crowd and, and kicking off the category of, of crowdsourced security. You know, we're, we're now far, far from the only player in the space, but we were the first to basically start the concept off. And it's it's working by the looks of things, which is great. But that was back in 2012. Yeah, I think it's safe to say it's more than working. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, I think, you know, it's doing what I always wanted it to, really two things. One was to be able to take the latent potential and the latent, you know, opportunity that exists within the, the white hat hacker community in particular and connect it with all of the unmet demand that exists, you know, cyberspace and people that are trying to defend stuff, right? And then the other was really just to stop my buddies from, you know, getting knocks on the door from police and going to jail. Like the, the whole idea of, of reforming, you know, vulnerability disclosure and, and just the kind of the laws around hacking that affects people that are operating in good faith in the same way that they're designed to help prosecute actual baddies. You know, we're making some pretty big dents on that too. So that's that's actually something that I do. Started in Bug Crab, but operates alongside the uh, Disclose.io project, which is basically designed around, you know, making vulnerability disclosures safe and standardized globally. So that's another another thing that I'm middling on. Yeah, a long, long-term work in progress there. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think once you get it in your head that you're an entrepreneur, you just sort of can't stop. It's one of these ones where it's like, you know, the the list of ideas is always enormous, and I think focus is actually the greater challenge than than, than ideation for for folk like myself. You, you'd be in the same boat. We've had conversations before, and you seem to be cut from similar cloth there. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's one of those ones where just you know doubling down on the things that are most impactful and that are going to produce the, the the greatest benefit, obviously as a solution, but then as you know as a economic outcome, as a product and solution being good. That's sort of how I think about it. Okay. So that, that's you these days. But I guess how did it all start? How did you get into security? A whole, whole bunch of things kind of come together. I think, you know, Aussies just in general, uh, I've, I've noticed this. We actually see it through data on the, on the Bug Crowd platform. We, we punch well above our weight in, in, in security. I actually kind of put that down in, in a lot of ways to our culture and the fact that we you know, started as a convict colony, which people, you know, tend to chuckle at, but like the whole idea of being a bit anti-establishment kind of by nature and also being very good at just solving whatever the problem is with whatever's within arm's reach. Like Aussies are just good at that. And, you know, I think half the time we don't even realise how good we are at that on a, on a global scale. So that's something I've realised since I've since moved to the US. No offence to the Aussies listening, as to the Yanks listening, <laughs> rather. But yeah, I think probably more broadly, you know, my old man was a science teacher, so he's always bringing stuff home with, you know, talking about physics and doing electronics and, 
you know, first computer I, I mucked about on was a like, first home computer was an Apple IIe. Played around a little bit with mainframes and stuff prior to that. Yeah, th- that was the tech side. And I think as well, just, you know, I enjoy thinking like a criminal, but I don't want to be one. And that's just always been true. Like I've got, I've got an appreciation for, it's like, you know, criminals get to operate as entrepreneurs, but without rules. And obviously they cause harm and there's a legal risk in that. So it's not to, not to glamorize it, but it's sort of functionally what's going on. And it's always intrigued me. I've, I've enjoyed thinking like that. So I think all of those things coming together, you know, as I said, like once I realized that, oh, wait, I can hack stuff. I can like do like bad guy things, but actually have it be for a good reason and actually, you know, keep the lights on as a, as a product of it. That was Christmas because I didn't know that was a thing up until, up until that point. So that's kind of how I got started. And really, you know, it's just a fascinating space. Like security, security has got to be the most, I think, future-proof, one of the most future-proof domains to learn stuff in out of, out of all of them because, you know, the bad guys are always innovating. Like there's like no matter what we come up with, yeah, from a technology standpoint for defense and no matter what we come up with, you know, in terms of what we automate next or, or whatever, there's always going to be some sort of drive for, for people that are operating in the negative sense of offense and to exploit that for their own reasons. And that's just, that's going to keep us all very busy for a very long time. So I don't know, there's job security and it. it's a really fun problem set, like a lovely community and passionate about, you know, hackers and, and, and helping folk in security just kind of pursue potential and, and actualize it. Because, you know, we've all, I think most of the folk that end up in this space, we've all got this kind of, I call it the golden eye. We've got this quirk where you start talking about security stuff and you just sort of see the eyes light up a little bit. And that doesn't actually happen for everyone. But the people that that does happen with, it's like, all right, you, you could probably actually accelerate beyond people without that starting from the same point in this in this space and in pursuit of things that are productive and make you happy so that just seems like a really cool thing to be able to work on it's a concern of mine you mentioned about being future proof and Mm. obviously i talked to a lot of people at different stages of their careers and particularly sort of more entry level and i'm always asking okay some of the main things is why why security does alarm me when that's one of the first things they talk about being a future proof industry yeah, uh, look, I don't think it's a bad reason. I, I do. I think the flip side of it, you know, this is Chris Eng from you know one of the early Vericode guys, and I get into these like deep philosophical chats in Vegas on on pretty much an annual basis, and and we, you know, I came up with this metaphor at one point that defensive cybersecurity is like being a boxer, but you're like the game for you is to stay stay in the ring until you eventually get knocked out, and then get up and do it again whilst everyone else is like being counted on points and just normal boxing boxing rules. Because, you know, between here and the heat death of the universe, like everyone's going to get owned. So, so like that's the reality of, of, yeah. of our job is it's not, you know, we're not solving a problem in the sense that it can ever be a hundred percent completely solved. Like there's no, I, I'm a firm believer in the idea that there's no such thing as, as secure, but there is such a thing I think as, as being a hundred percent convicted that you've taken a rational approach to risk when it comes to protecting your users and, and and the future of your organization so it's you know it's one of those ones where it's just it's always a fight and that's kind of the nature of the of the industry but for me and i think for a lot of people to get into it that you, you're kind of calling out right now you know being in love with that fight really helps 
I don't think it's necessary. I think you can just learn to learn to love it or you can learn to be really good at it and, and treat it from a job security standpoint as well. I do, I do definitely think it helps to have passion. And that's, you know, part of part of what we tried to do with Bug Crowd was to, you know, not so much go after this, like let's turn people into hackers approach. It's more like who's intrigued? Like where is there the interest that's out there? Like folk that, you know, have kind of been peering over the fence and not really knowing how to like hackers are scary or they seem kind of clicky and I, I don't want to get yelled at or made to feel stupid or whatever. Like how do you just make it accessible and, and kind of lower the barrier to entry for people that have that intrigue? Because there's a lot of gold in, in, in that group and it's quite a large group I found. Yeah. Okay. That, that's fair enough. And that makes Yeah. Sense. Also job security. So there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of went on a tangent there, but yeah, I, I do understand going through that just to kind of call out to the audience on this call that, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough gig. Like it's one of those things where, you know, there's, there's always something going on and, and half the time you're really winning and the other half of the time you kind of existentially like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? And if, if you're you know, just actually preparing yourself for that kind of excitement and that roller coaster that can happen in this industry, I think that's wise. So Buck Crowd, eight years old this year always been, I guess, a straightforward success, but how, I guess, did Rockout actually come around in the first place? It's, and it's interesting. It had, I mean, definitely not straightforward is not the word I'd use to describe any, anything about Bugcrowd because it's kind of a weird, <laughs> yeah, it's an unorthodox business to begin with. But, you know, I think it has been pretty linear in that we were right about the problem and we were right about the timing. Like the, 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 the problem of not being able to get access to the people that can answer the questions that you've got insecurity like you know resource shortage or is it like resource connection matching who knows but that's that was really starting to kick off i think the whole like the the whole topic of bug bounties involved disclosure the role of hackers in the internet you know that that caught a tail in about a year and a half after we started so that timing was great yeah Oh yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, you know, it's sort of like the, the founder's job is to predict the future and try to get the timing right. You know what I mean? Cause if you're too late, it doesn't matter. And if you're too early, it doesn't matter. So, you know, I think it's like 50% serendipity and, and 50%, you know, some instinct, I think, but yeah, there's definitely a, a luck factor that plays in. But yeah, I mean, you know, pretty much I was running a, an outsource pen test firm. Yeah. So, so we, we were, you know, doing, doing, effectively white labeled pen test and it was a great business uh, like objectively it was it was good we did good work we made sure that you know we weren't kind of exploiting i think some of the margin potential that exists from doing that that's a thing actually that was one of the things that made me wanting to really kind of start to mess around with with better ways to to bring the like the future of work forward so it was it was sort of that the inefficiency of it all but also just this idea that like one person being paid by the hour is never going to outsmart on a continuous basis all of the potential sets of creativity and, and reasons to, to try to exploit that exist on the um, on the adversarial side it's just like you know this like the pen tester could be brilliant it's not about that it's about the fact that the math is wrong like it's it's one person against an army so you know i was just sort of noodling on that and it's not like oh let's rub some blockchain on it and it'll go away or whatever it's like no, this is a this is a you know cybersecurity is fundamentally a human problem the technology just makes it go faster right so it's like how do you how do you get humans involved in this in a way that's more effective and more efficient for both sides for the human as well as for you know the person getting the their questions answered 
So yeah, there was all of that. And then I was down in Melbourne, basically the, the story goes, I was down in Melbourne meeting with a bunch of customers, Google and Facebook had just done a bunch of press around their, their VRPs and everyone wanted to talk about it. It was partly just, you know, the Silicon Valley Kool-Aid on, on the whole thing. It's like, oh, Google are doing a cool thing, you know, which is great. It was more than that though. It was like, this makes sense. Like if you're talking about balancing out the economics and resourcing models of defense against offense, this just seems like a really intuitive or, or at least a logical way to do do that. So I started asking people like, what's stopping you? And it was pretty much the flight home from, from Melbourne when kind of the light bulb went on that they'd all said the same things. And it's like, oh, wait a sec, if we could like solve those objections in, in the form of a platform and a service, then it's not just about, you know, bringing like bug bounty and, and bond disclosure to everyone. It's actually about, you know, being able to basically set up a position for the future of work to be possible for, for cybersecurity. So I came up with the name Bug Crowd on the flight, came up with the, the reward kind of game model for basically project-based crowdsource testing. Wow. Got home, registered the domain. Um, if you do a who is on it, you can you can see what day that was. And that was kind of when it all clicked. And it's like, all right, well, let's do this. You know, prior to that, I've been introducing like game theory into the pen testers that, that I was working with. So it's like you get almost like a sales bonus for the most impactful issues and different things like that. And that was working really well. It just wasn't solving the problem that mm. I wanted to solve, which was like, how do we just change this shit for everyone? Like, how do we just completely upend the model, which, you know, in the absence of something like Bucrad, didn't really have a lot of reason to change. People are going to need pen testing for a long time. There's good money in it. There's good margin in it. And so there's no real, it's not on fire in a way that usually causes things to change change and just looking at this as a catalyst to make the whole thing more democratized and meritocratic but then more effective for everyone who's involved as well that's kind of how it all got going obviously bringing bringing a new service to the table effectively and obviously having to maybe educate a lot of people out there yeah how'd that go and i guess category category creation is hard i i think we had we had a lot of lift to work with because like we didn't invent bug bounty, nor did we invent bond disclosure, far from it. But it, it was still at that point in time a fairly like weird kind of esoteric area of security. So what we had to do was to take that and then try to basically make that message relevant to everyone else in security and then try to make that message relevant to everyone in technology and, and, and more broadly like disclose I now we're trying to make it relevant to you know, grandma, because you know, it's neighborhood watch makes sense, right? So there's, we're just continuing to expand the number of people that actually kind of grok the idea and, and want to engage on it. And that's, you know, in terms of what Bug Crowd's doing as a company, it's it's fundamentally that idea of accessing hackers as a part of the solution, even when it's like Bug Crowd's nowhere in sight. Like that's that was part of the goals that I kind of listed out for myself at the, at the beginning of the company as well. And I do think that mission drive is helpful. You know, one of my favorite definitions of founder is someone who's irrationally pissed off about a problem they think they can solve. And the key word there is irrational because it's not, it doesn't always make total sense, but you just know a thing can change for the better and you, you feel like you can actually drive that change. So I find that really motivating. Yeah. I think that's probably the big driver is motivation there. 100%. Yeah. Well, and attention as well. I think, you know, founder ADD is also a thing. So having something that's like, sufficiently attention capturing is, is helpful too. But yeah, I mean, that, that's really, you know, the, the initial piece, I think, I mean, it would, 
coming up on eight years. So it's it's gone from like scrappy, like doing it on my own to bringing a team together, to getting funded, to moving to the US, to building out to, you know, we're 180 employees. We've raised $80, $80 million. We've got a couple hundred thousand people in the crowd and, and a few thousand customers. Like, you know, I'd, I'd go and do stuff on cap, like get asked in to Capitol Hill to talk about how hackers can play a role in securing the future of democracy in 2020. So it's been this like really pretty incredible and constant like set of new things, if that makes sense. And that's part of the fun. It's part of the challenge and 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 the stress of it. But it's it's you know exhilarating at the same time, which is pretty cool. Wow, that's, that's such a ride. I'm sure it it really is, and it's nice every now and then because I think that's that's part of it. You know, for folk that are doing because entrepreneurship takes a lot of different forms. I think one of the questions that I often get asked is, "Oh, how do you go to Silicon Valley and raise money?" And my answer to that is always like, "Why the hell would you do that?" Like. San Francisco is the most economically irrational place on the planet. And that goes for the money that you're spending, not just what you're getting in potentially mm-hmm. from VCs. For us, you know, it was like my wife and I had talked about wanting to see inside the belly of the beast and do something like this for a couple of years prior to, to Bug Crowd becoming a thing. So we're already kind of primed up in this direction. When the idea clicked for Bug Crowd, the, the thing that I thought through pretty quickly afterwards was like, this is going to move quickly. Like this will either catch on fire and fail or it's going to move really, really fast. And if it, if it does the latter, then we're going to want to be resourced in all the ways that you can be, you know, capital wise, then access to talent and people that have done it before and stuff like that. That's only really available. Australia's gotten a lot better at it in the last eight years, but you know, San Francisco is like Hollywood for actors. Like you don't have to do stuff there, but if you don't at least go there, you won't quite get, kind of the origin of, of how the industry that you're in came to exist. So that was our decision. You know, there's a lot to be said, I think, for, you know, consulting work and building that out. There's there's a lot to be said for, you know, hacking away on a on an app and, and seeing that grow over time or like upworking things and building a team out and stuff like that. Like, like there's all sorts of different roads to Rome and they're all, I think, exhilarating and stressful and grindy and, you know, passion-inducing and all that kind of stuff. So... You know, I try to sort of frame these stories because we've done some objectively amazing stuff, I think. And, and, and I'm kind of reminding myself to sort of step back from that every now and then go, well, oh, that's actually pretty cool because, you know, you see the duck on top of the pond, but then the legs are going like batshit crazy underneath. And as an operator, you're mostly focused on the bit that's below the surface. So like taking those opportunities to actually reflect on the, the, the big wins is, is an is a important thing. What are those big wins for you? I think, I mean, you know, like hackers were bad by default when we started and, and they're not anymore. Mm. Like that, honestly, that's the, that was a, that was a goal. And, you know, aside from, there's a lot of other things that we've done, but like, that's, I would say that's the thing I'm most proud of. Like the, the, the fact that we've managed to, to, you know, alter the perception of at this point, pretty much everyone around you know is the hacker an inherently evil person or is there such a thing as a locksmith that you know we've previously thought of as a burglar (laughs) if that makes sense like that's kind of where it was at and that's been that's been a fight like that's been you know that's 30 years of 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 effort of of you know the giants whose shoulders i stand on and we managed to like carry that i think at least across the line i don't feel like it's ubiquitous yet like the job's not done but that just default inference that if you're doing bad things to a computer, you're automatically a bad person. I think that's 
basically gone away at this point, which is good. So I'm proud of that. I think getting, you know, getting involved in, you know, the, the election stuff, that was just, it was cool, but it was actually, you know, it was a phenomenal honour to get. Because, you know, again, like, who's this Aussie kid from Barat doing the thing? Like, I think there's the kind of the imposter syndrome that's inherent to the security space. And I think Australians add another layer on top of that with our whole tall poppy thing. So I have to, I have to, you know, deal with that in the same way that anyone in the space does. And it's like, oh, who me? Like, really? So getting, it is a bit, getting tapped on the shoulder to do that is, is, is pretty cool. But then, you know, actually having the opportunity to, because at the same time as, you know, imposter syndrome, something that, you know, I'm fighting it off same as everyone else. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm an expert on this and I can actually help. So to see some of the input get, you know, picked up and run with, like those things are incredible. You know, we're, we're taking a really heavy tilt on basically anti-hacking law and, and things like the DMCA as they relate to good faith security research because all the laws that were created to protect people against being hacked and bad hackers were created without this concept of good faith in, in, in the mix, which means, you know, a lot of the the positive security research is still being done under this like kind of dark cloud of, you know, potentially getting your door kicked in. So yeah, stuff like that. We get to work on some really cool stuff. Hi, this is a quick break. First of all, I just want to say thank you for listening to the podcast. And secondly, I'm Ricky Burke. I'm director of CyberSec People. This is my full-time job. Um, CyberSec People is a leading cybersecurity recruitment company. We support companies in hiring the best people in the industry. And we do this through our industry knowledge, connections to the industry, and handling of recruitment processes. If your organization is hiring or will be hiring cybersecurity professionals, please do reach out and see how we can help. Take care. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, you obviously mentioned about the raise, like going back, obviously the other highlights would be raising and $80 million. That's a lot of money. And I'm mm. sure it's not all been plain sailing. No. So I guess what, what were the first two, three years like in the business and, and the growth around that? I think the, the, the first the first two or three years, you know, the first year was pretty much like go through start mate. So we got accepted into an accelerator program, did did four months of that, which was just unbelievably intense, but really, really cool. And and it kind of gave me access to this sort of pre-built network into the US, which I I knew I'd need because I don't know how to speak American or didn't at that point. Because there is, you know, uh, there's a bunch of things. I think that the, the big thing is that Americans lead with the vision and then get into the detail later, where, whereas Aussies will tend to, you know, volunteer struggle and, and, and weakness for the sake of, you know, getting everyone on the same page to solve problems, but also I think to build trust and then we'll kind of work our way up to the, like, to the end game. If you pitch or if you try to communicate like that in the US, it's you might as well be speaking Hindi to someone who speaks Chinese. Like it just doesn't work. And it's not like because the way we do it's good or the way they do it's bad. It's just very different kind of cultural expectations in, in how you communicate. I think there's a lot of that. Things just move a lot faster, I guess. It's, I mean, well, you, you could say that, but then you look at how we've responded to COVID versus how they've responded to COVID, and that's not necessarily always true. It's, <laughs> there's a lot of, I think, I think the big thing, like, Talking about it as a, as a difference in language and a difference in communication styles, as reductive as I've been able to get it in a way that's actually useful to people. Because like some of the advice 
advice I got was like, yeah, puff your chest out and like say big numbers and use your hands a lot and blah, blah, blah. Like be more American. <laughs> and and I tried, but like I'm pretty terrible at lying and, and not very good at faking stuff. So the minute I did that, you know, it was obvious and it just kind of didn't work. So I'm like, that's not the answer. That's what the answer looks like when you figure it out, but it's not actually the answer in and of itself. So yeah, it's just, I mean, the cross-cultural things, that, that's just, it's fascinating. Like that's a kind of my, one of my little side pet, just, you know, obsession learning things. It's, it's really been interesting with the US and, and, and Australia. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, the whole thing. So start mate, finish that up. We had a whole lot of proof in those first four months that yeah, this was going to work. Like we had, we had, you know, 10, 15,000 hackers show up and say, yeah, I'd love to, love to, love to do something. Yeah, it was amazing. It was sort of like, uh, it, literally, it was just some tweets. It was like, hey, we're going to do this like bug bounty platform thing. I don't know if it'll work or not, but if you want to like maybe hack on some cool stuff and you want to get notified when we're going to do it, just sign up and, and go. And it sort of went viral. So it's like, okay, the supply side's there. Like there's people, there's people available that actually want to do this because that was one of the, the questions that we needed to tick the box on. And then, of course, the other side of it is like, is it going to sell? Do people actually want this? And we did, you know, I think it was a quarter of a million in, in revenue before we even built a platform in, in those first four months. Like the, this is another true kind of folklore story. My co-founder, Chris, who I brought on a couple of months in, he coded the, uh, the version of the platform that we used to pitch to VCs and SF, like literally on the flight to San Francisco. Because prior to that, we'd been using like Wufu and MailChimp and all sorts of like cobbled together stuff to, to make it work. You know, okay, so demand side seems to want what we're selling. That's good. So at that point, that's kind of all you really need for a seed stage pitch. It's like, is the market interesting? Does the market seem to want to do the thing that you're proposing? And probably the other piece is like, are you the right team to actually execute on that? That's what an investor is going to be looking for at that stage of things. And we... You know, we ticked those boxes, I think, fairly comprehensively by that point, which was good. Combination, again, of execution, like right idea at the right time and then just some some luck and some, you know, favourable tailwinds, I think, kind of all contributed to that. But then, yeah, it was like literally, cool, you got two million bucks now. You've learned how to pitch American. I pitched in America the same way that I pitched in Australia and it did not work. That was kind of that little rant just before was based off that experience because we had we had a decent amount of funding committed, but I wanted US cash and connection in the business. So I was pitching, yeah, I was pitching the same way that I pitched back here in Sydney, which is where I am right now. And it just didn't work. Like they liked the idea, but they're like, nah, nah I, don't, I don't think your vision is big enough. So yeah, so I had to, what I had to do was to learn how to, because my vision for this thing's always been massive. I just learned pitching in Australia to not lead with that. It's like, here's the stuff that we know and here's what you're going to invest in. And we crank the handle and more money comes out and all that. And more things happen in the US. It's like, no, we want to just completely change the nature of work and connect the entire potential you know supply side with as much of the problem space as we can which has always been what's in my head i just didn't know how to say that or when when i was pitching the business here so that was you know and figured that out ended up over committed and took the round in but then the back end of that year was just figuring out how to immigrate you know i did six weeks of a science degree the a3 visa requires a degree so that was our first kind of immigration hurdle which we eventually figured out but 
Oh yeah, getting detained in secondary every time I entered the country. That was fun too. Really? So yeah, yeah, for about a year and a half, and then we got some money on a firm that has some of the like the DHS and some of those guys in the US connected with it. And um, I had a chat with a few people, and that stopped happening, which was good. <laughs> Just so happens. <laughs> yeah, it was convenient. It was sort of like, hey, I'm getting like I, I, I appear to be on some sort of list, like. I'm trying to create jobs in this country and you guys are making it hard. So if you could like unfuck that, that would be great. And and they did. So that was good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that was year one, year two, year three. It was really just, you know, a lot of, a lot of network effect, a lot of like tell the story, get people involved. You know, the, the, like hacker one popped up in that, in that time, they're about nine to 12 months after us to market and Sinac was about six months after us as well. So, and then there was a whole bunch of people in their like garage saying, Oh, this seems like a good idea. Let's do it. So sort of navigating that and trying not to get too distracted in that period was, was interesting, but all of that netted out to, you know, and then like Microsoft started running a a bounty program on top of their VRP. We're talking the department of defense and there was before hack the Pentagon, but when they were starting to make some really strong signals in that direction. So all of that sort of created this like very topical tailwind around bug bounty. And we saw that and thought, cool, let's write that because that's going to solve the, Mm. you know, everyone's afraid of hackers problem. And it did. So that's really like the first three years of bug crowd and like being an accidental t-shirt company and throwing like crazy parties (laughs) and stuff like that. Like helps. There's a lot to it. Yeah, it was fun. And it continues to be fun. That period, you know, I, I, I look back on it really fondly because that's just a whole bunch of stuff that you're trying for the first time. And half of it doesn't work, but when it does, it's awesome. And then you just kind of discard the half that doesn't work and double down and then keep experimenting on top. And I just, I find that that's energizing at that stage of the process. Now it's really about how I and my team within bug crowd do that to extend on where we are today so it's like a much larger business now obviously now it's like you know continuing that kind of mission that i called out before of connecting as much of this to this as we can it's a it's a similar sort of model but with a larger business sort of sitting underneath it Mm. i guess things are never easy but i guess with the with the brands the company has now the industry more mature i'm guessing it's a different type of conversation now than it was three four five years ago Oh yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. And it's not, you know, we're not trying to think of how to frame this because, you know, back at the start, it's like I didn't really have, you know, a reputation like my people knowing me has really been a byproduct of bug crowd working. So I didn't really have that to trade on when we first got to the US, and I, and I do now, which is, you know, it helps. It's it's a all sorts of weird things come along with with that territory, but it's in the, in the you know to the effect that it like opens doors and allows you to have conversations you wouldn't be able to have otherwise. It's incredibly valuable for that. Yeah, so I think you know we're not we're not a household name yet, but we're definitely out of the garage. And you know, you talk to anyone in security, they know what we're doing and who we are. And a lot of people in I think just more general IT as well, especially you know with some of the newer stuff that's happening in IT, and especially even now with like. The great experiment and you know these unusual times.com that we're that we're having where um you know digital transformations are being fast-tracked because all the stores are shut and, and and different things like that it's like oh who's this com- who's that like we need people who's that company that does that like what's this thing with hackers where we can like have them come in and help us do this stuff it's all just 
continuing to move in the right direction, which is good. That's what, that's great. So yeah. obviously, there's you've now been in the US for a number of years. You've just done a recent round of funding, and congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so that was yeah, it was that was that was like I, I posted the GIF. There's this GIF of a, uh, I think it's a budgerigar like running along a table and it's got like explosions happening behind it. That's what that financing felt like. Cause it was like the market was like just into the slide of completely shitting itself as we were closing. And it was, it was a, it was a fun time to raise capital as for sure. So, uh, I guess for a bit of insight for, for no one that's maybe been through that before, what, what's that like? Sure. It's, it's just, I mean, anyone who's been involved, like done sales or been involved as a, you know, a um, subject matter expert or a sales engineer, even in a in a sale, it's just like a really big version of that. Basically, like you, you functionally, what you're doing is you're selling either like a an option or a right to debt in the business, or you're actually selling a piece of the company in exchange for capital to grow the remain like the entirety of the company. But you know, obviously, you're most interested in the piece that you don't sell at that point in time as a as a founder, as a, as someone who's in the business. So it's just a you know a very large enterprise sale is really what it what it looks like and what it feels like. There's a lot of you know there's a lot of yeses. There's a lot of maybes. There's a lot of like nos. It's a it's a it's tiring. What I try to get from it is you know this idea that like I know more about my business than any VC, but they know more about how to how to grow businesses and make them valuable than I do because that's what they do for for a living. Um, so I try to learn as much as I can. It's like, you know, what are the questions that you're asking that I didn't have the answer to or that I thought were a stupid question but I heard in three different meetings? Like that sort of thing where you can kind of get, there's a lot of signal on that stuff, I think, if you get your ears up for it. So, yeah, there's, there's all of that. Yeah, so all of that, it, it's, yeah, I, I think that probably the big thing for folks that are doing that is, you know, it, it doesn't, there is a lot of, you know, you trade on hype. VCs do have, I think, a, a strong kind of social cue driver to because to, to, they're fundamentally in the business of predicting what's going to happen. And if there's a lot of buzz around the thing, it looks more certain. So there's, there's elements of that that you want to deliberately foster and try to take advantage of. I mean, there's a lot to it. I think that probably the biggest thing for me that's been a, a good tool with that is just almost you know, exactly what you just did and, and like finding people that have done it and asking them that question and then just getting into the really, you know, the really stupid specifics. Like I'm huge on mentorship for that reason. It's like, you know, you, you find people that have been where you are, have since gone to, you know, the places that you want to go to and hopefully beyond. And then you, you build relationship and humble yourself to the point where you can ask them really, you know, questions you feel are really dumb, mm. um, but you know that they've had to ask at some point. And it just works because the other bit of that is that you, you know, ignore usually I find about 80% of what they say because it's not about delegating your decision-making to someone else. It's about understanding their, their frameworks and the things that worked for them. So half the time they'll say, oh, I do this and that and the other thing. And you're kind of looking for the signal in that in terms of how it can improve or level up the way that you think about what you're doing. And that way you get to you know, hang on to the vision and the thing you're trying to do. So what, I guess what were the big learning curves for you going from obviously you're now Series D? So you've obviously done a few rounds of this now. Yeah. No, how to CEO good. That's, that's a fun one. I think the transition from you know, actually learning like a really interesting one that I learned, you know, bug 
It's been the largest company that I've ever worked for for about five years now. So it's like, you know, not just not just kind of learning on the fly from a, a management and a leadership standpoint, but actually learning without context of having worked in a larger organization. It's it's been this like, you know, lots of lots of new stuff, which has been great. Cause learning is a thing that that really motivates and drives me as well. But yeah, the whole idea of like, you know, leadership and management not being the same thing. I think like natural leaders or people with a natural leadership tendency often get kind of typecast as effective managers. But from my perspective, like I'm probably more on the leadership side than the management side naturally. Management for me is a learned skill and it's a learned process. And I think probably um, for people that have management as a natural part of their DNA, leadership might be a learned process for them. So the whole that relationship was really interesting to like observe first and then try to navigate and, and upskill. You know, learning how to not do stuff. I think the, uh, you know, the role of the founder is to do everything. The role of the CEO ultimately is to like do nothing. Um, you, you want to be in a position where you're, you're, you're just like, you know, have the right people doing the right things, make sure there's enough money in the bank and make sure that the vision's clear to all of the stakeholders. Those are the three primary functions of a CEO. So letting things go, even though you're really interested in them and want to work on them, that's a that's a pretty counterintuitive process. Making sure the vehicle's going in the right direction. Yeah, and, and you can do that by doing, but I think as you grow a team, you want to make sure that you're empowering them to actually be better at it than you are. Yeah. So there's, there's that aspect of like letting stuff go that... You know, this was this was really the first time that I'd been through that. It's it's interesting. Like, there's aspects of it that are really difficult because you're not getting to play with the toys that you'd like to play with and different things like that. So that that was interesting. And I think as well, honestly, the the one I always get asked is just you know transition out of CEO, like actually making the decision to go out and hire someone into that role and and moving to chairman and CTO. That's like the single most difficult decision I've had to make from a career standpoint to this day and you know I, I believe a good one i believe the right one i love working with ashish like spent a lot of time you know hiring and, and looking at all the different people and trying to figure out what would what would work best but ultimately that came down to just knowing you know what i wanted to be spending like you know the 90 percent of my time on mm. and 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 recognizing and being you know kind of objective about the fact that i was only getting about 10 percent of my time to actually do that stuff that's that was a lot of the reason for it. We've all got our own strengths and weaknesses as well. Yeah, there's certain things you can influence more. Not to say you did a bad job, because obviously, bad crowd is in an amazing position. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I set that thing up for a win, and he's he's taken it he's taken it on from that perspective, from the operational standpoint, and continued to grow up from there. So, I don't see that as as failure at all. Do miss, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, it's awesome not being the boss. It, it sucks not being the boss as well at the same time. So there's, there's like two sides to that that piece of it as well. And there's definitely things that I would do differently ahead of time next time around because, you know, I'll, I'll be doing my crowd for quite a while to come. You know, at whatever point doing the next thing looks like, you know, I'll probably sleep for about six months and then annoy the hell out of my family for another three and just go again so you know i'm trying to like ingest all these learnings to to make that 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 version more effective and like the whole idea of building exactly what you just said like understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are and actually really building into your weaknesses and your construction of your team and where you focus your effort in terms of partnerships with with your team as you as you build it like my 
you know, follow, th- follow through on the operating side and, and that component of management, that's something that I know naturally I just need help with. So being able to double down, if I'd have hired a COO and really invested in that type of relationship maybe two years prior, I could have potentially been in a position where I was thinking about that decision differently. Uh, no regrets on that, but it was a really good learning to be able to go back on and say, okay, this is, this is stuff that I can actually use going forward as well. It shows a good maturity level when to, to, to bring someone else in effectively give them control of your baby in a sense i mean i also i also took chairman and that was very deliberate i did i wanted to make sure that i wasn't signaling you know i'm out but also not signaling that i'm i'm disengaged from a from a leadership and a viewpoint on the vision of the business and that was as much internal as it was external but yeah you're right like functionally he's he's got the got the steering wheel in his hands so it's a it's a not a not an easy decision to make but it, it was a good one and it's it's a good one to be able to talk about as well i think the conversation around you know when we announced this stuff i had a lot of founders founder ceos like oh like someone who isn't me was you know maybe thinking through similar things that you've been thinking through and and <laughs> they were wanting to understand how you thought about it yeah, you know, it's a it's a conversation that's inherently difficult to have with anyone. You know, I think the just the the validation of it and and you know making it a little bit less of a scary kind of faux pas type of thing. I think that's been a, a good byproduct as well. How, how long does that that decision take out of interest to come around to it? A couple of months. Yeah, it was sort of it's sort of heating up. Just watching what was going on, it's like I'm spending ninety percent of my time on my one X and like. 10% of my time on the stuff that I know I can be world-class at. And that was getting to me because I want to be effective. So that was that was bothering me. I started thinking it through and really the trigger was was actually at a board meeting saying, yeah, look, I think we should start a search. You know, want to look for a COO. But, you know, if we if we need to in terms of attracting the right kind of caliber of talent to do the business justice, I'm, I'm open to, to doing a CEO search as well. And the board kind of fell off their chair because they're like, Founders don't, we're normally doing this to the founder, not the other way around. <laughs> but that was, you know, that was part of it as well. It's like, if, if it's, if you're at a point where it's like, I'm existentially concerned about the board's mm. view of my relevance to the business, then you've really done something wrong at that point. I think there's no need for there to be that tension in your business. And we were far from that, but it was like all of this stuff in terms of how it's coming together. I just, I feel like we can optimize it more. So yeah, a couple of months, and then the search itself took about six months. I interviewed maybe fifty people. Yeah, because I take that shit seriously. Yeah, especially that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we went from there. Yeah, it was it was a big call. But anyway, so yeah, that's that's part of it. It's you know I, I, I bring that up off the back of your question because it is it's a question that you know, people want to know if I'm comfortable talking about it and different things like that. But it's a question that most people have if they understand the backstory. And I think it's a really you know it's uh, there's lessons from it. I don't. I feel like I executed all that perfectly by any stretch, but it's definitely something that I think anyone could kind of take something from, hopefully, and, and have it be useful. Yeah, I thought it's very interesting, and especially if, again, outside of looking in, but it feels like you're putting the business before yourself as well. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, that's a, that's a funny thing about, you know, the closest, the closest analogy I've got to – actually, it was my daughter who just walked in before to, to, to do a school stuff. She's 11, going on 12, and, you know, she's – she uh, like if she gets married or even if she you know goes to like leaves home goes to school whatever that looks like those big kind of milestones in a parent's life where you're functionally handing your child off to someone else that's as close as i can imagine 
you know, to, to this. And I haven't, been, I haven't been through that yet with her, so I could be grossly underestimating it. But it's a similar sort of thing because it's like when you when you start a company, it's a newborn. Like it'll literally die if you don't give it your 110% attention. But then it starts to develop its own personality. It starts to de- develop its own autonomy. And, you know, as, as the father or the, or the mother of, of the business, part of your part of the decision-making you have to apply to it is like to what degree should it be autonomous and to what degree should you still be very much involved in controlling it? Because that's going to be different for every leader. It's going to be different for every business. But I think it's a really important conversation to, to have and to be unafraid of having. It's a, it's a big call. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. And obviously the, the journey is amazing. And I mean, effectively you are as far as i'm concerned one of australia's success stories over the last number of years thank you yeah i I appreciate that and hopefully there'll be more especially yeah and i guess what knowing the journey you've been through and there's obviously ups and downs lots of amazing highlights but i guess what what are the pieces of advice or recommendations you'd make to the future founders out there just get moving uh, you know that's probably the big one uh, there's never going to be i have i have so many conversations with people where it's like oh once i've got this that and that and this and the other thing and all of these other things kind of all lined up in a row then i'll then i'll do something you know my risk tolerance i mean i'm a i'm a actually a very calculated person when it comes to risk taking but my risk tolerance is quite high like i want to bet big by like win big by betting big basically and not everyone's in that boat so i think just sort of knowing what that is for you personally is important and straight up you know one of the one of the co-founders i had in the business we got about a year in and he wasn't able to move for for family reasons but as well i think it was like yeah i wanted to get this thing going but the whole like bringing my family into this fundamentally fairly risky thing i'm just not we're not ready for that as a family unit which i have total respect for and we're still friends like that was a, a clean kind of separation we still talk quite a bit so really it's just the kind of knowing yourself i think is pretty important but aside from that if you've got a you know if you've got a bug in your brain to do this type of thing then now is the time to do it it's you know if you wait for wait for the rain you'll, you'll never sow your crop and i think uh, just getting moving is is really the way that you learn and the way that you improve so there'd be that and then the other is just mentorship which we kind of talked about before it's like learning how to you know, you might be really good at a certain set of things and be able to carry it through, but there's absolutely no way you know all the things that you need to, to actually do this stuff, which means you need input and you need people that you trust and people that you can talk to, people that you can kind of vent to and people that you can actually get wisdom and guidance from when it comes to decisions. And just, you know, being deliberate about cultivating that, I think, because a lot of, I think a lot of people think that mentorship and, and that sort of relationship just sort of happens. And it doesn't. Everyone's busy. Everyone's got their own thing to do. And, and you actually have to be deliberate about what you want and then actually going out and fostering it and cultivating it. So I, I tend to harp on about those things. Probably the other is just look after your mental health. You, you talk about that in the, in the context of security being you know, a potentially challenging space for mental health. Like you add entrepreneurship on top of that and it's it's 10x. You know, it's, it's like if you're not bipolar before you get into this, you definitely are by the time you, you finish up because it's like you know, high, highest of highs and lowest of lows 10 times in any given day. So I think just being pragmatic about the fact that that's sort of what it looks like 
you know, again, self-awareness, like just sort of keeping check on yourself and being in a position where you can step back and say, how am I going? Like, what do I need to do? How's my team looking out for each other as you build a team out and all that sort of stuff? It's easy to underestimate because it gets exciting and you're just running after shit. But I think that's really important. I've seen a lot of people like very dramatically flame out because they underestimated that and I've come close to doing it myself. So I think that's a really, that's a really important thing. Yeah. It's a good learning curve. Yeah, definitely. Good. I think that's that's some great information And, and thanks for sharing your story. Yeah, absolutely, man. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you've got any questions, comments, please reach out to me. You'll find me online anywhere, CyberSec Ricky. And if you would like to be involved in the future, maybe be a guest and then reach out as well. Thanks for your time. Have a great day. Bye.